0: different experiences. But we're made one because of Christ. That's the theme tonight, Lord, as we go through this section of your word, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And Lord, I pray that once again, your spirit would be here to bring enlightenment to us, further understanding. We have read the Bible, some of us, for many, many years. Make it fresh tonight. These truths... Open us up to yet deeper understanding of your will for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me tell you a little story. It happened about uh, a year or so ago, just about a year ago. Where I used to live before I moved here was up in the mountains of New Mexico. The elevation was 7,800 feet. It's up in the pine trees, and... um, I was driving in my neighborhood one evening and I saw this large dog gallop across the street. That's really the words to describe it, it was rather large. When I got closer I realized it wasn't a dog at all, it was a bear. And bears frequent uh, my neighborhood up there every summer. In fact, there's always a bear warning. And uh, it's a problem because what they do is they know that we put out our garbage on certain nights. and the words out. And uh, uh, the bears have a network. They tell their friends and their family members and their kids, and they all go uh, scavenging throughout the evening uh, to get garbage. And it's always been a problem in that community in the summertime that bears try to mingle with humans. And where I found this bear was right in a neighborhood with a lot of different homes. So I got out of my car, and uh, he was over against the fence, and I walked over to him, and then it it sort of dawned on me, it's not smart to get too close to a bear when he's cornered up against a barbed wire fence, and he crawled through the fence and ran away, and I thought I should, you know, I was just going to go check him out. Uh, And I realized that it's impossible to have the animal kingdom as such, a predator, mingle with humanity. It's not in their nature. Their nature is to attack when cornered, and he's much stronger than I am. I couldn't bear the thought of getting killed by one. And so, uh... but one day, as you know from the scripture, humanity and untamed nature will be able to dwell together. We read it in the book of Isaiah. Let me give you the preview. It's in Isaiah 11. The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lay down with the goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. One day there will be unity in the animal kingdom and in the human family. Unity of all of God's creation, not at odds at all with each other. No one being hunted. No one hunted. No one hunting. There's a more profound kind of unity that Paul is speaking about in this chapter. It's a spiritual unity. It's a unity between Jew, Gentile, outsider, insider. All the racial barriers, all of the background barriers are down and we are one in Christ. That's what he illustrates in this chapter. Now, we're going to read the first 13 verses tonight together and study that. I'm going to read the first seven verses to you in a different translation than I normally do, because I don't want you to follow along. I just want you to listen, because sometimes we've heard the Bible in certain chapters so many times it fails to have an impact. When you hear it in a new translation, sometimes it makes a greater impact. So I'm going to read it to you in the New Living Translation. I, Paul, am a prisoner of Jesus Christ because of my preaching to you Gentiles. As you already know, God has given me this special ministry of announcing his favor to you Gentiles. As I briefly mentioned earlier in this letter, God himself revealed his secret plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand what I know about this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now he has revealed it by the Holy Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is the secret plan. The Gentiles have an equal share with the Jews in all the riches inherited by God's children. Both groups have believed the good news and both are part of the same body and enjoy together the promise of blessings through Christ Jesus. By God's special favor and mighty power, I have been given the wonderful privilege of serving him by spreading the good news. Years ago, I mean many years ago, I'm talking back in the early 60s, there was a hit song called Do You Want to Know a Secret? How many of you remember? Let's see how old you are. Do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Whoa, 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 closer. Let me whisper in your ear, say the words you long to hear. I'm in love with you. Ooh, 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 ooh. Those are the words of the song, the first verse. Now, Paul is speaking here about a mystery. In the translation I gave you, he calls it a secret. In our translation, he calls it a mystery. The Greek word is musterion. It was a key word that the Ephesians would have heard about. They were into the mysterion religions, the mystery religions, where certain specific knowledge was given only to the initiated people. Special people could only get special knowledge. Paul uses the term differently. It's a mystery. That is, it's something God had not revealed in times past in the Old Testament. None of the prophets ever expounded on it. They never knew about it. But now it is revealed. It was secret. It's not a secret any longer. It's for everyone. And we should be telling as many people as we can. And what is it? Verse 6 which says in this translation that I read, This is the secret plan. The Gentiles have an equal share with the Jews in all of the riches inherited by God's children. Both groups have believed the good news and both are part of the same body and enjoy together the promise of blessings through Christ Jesus. This was a foreign concept to the Jewish people. And here's why. They had understood from birth They were special, they were favored, they were chosen. They remembered and relied upon a couple of verses of scripture in the Old Testament. Here's one out of Deuteronomy chapter 7. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. He has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all peoples on the face of the earth. So when you grow up knowing, believing, realizing that I'm chosen, I'm special. You begin misinterpreting and misunderstanding that to believe you're the only ones that God loves. I'm God's chosen. That means God loves me and he doesn't love you because I'm one of the chosen ones. And they had different mottos. One of them I shared last week. Some of the pious Jews said, quote, God has created Gentiles to kindle the fires of hell. It was against their law in the oral law to help a Gentile woman give birth to a baby because that would be to bring another heathen into the world. Here's another motto that I found. The best of the serpents crush, the best of the Gentiles kill So what happened over time is they became separatists, isolationists, segregationists, not integrationists. Even though God told them in Isaiah chapter 49, you shall be a light unto the Gentiles. Yes, you're a chosen race. You're special above all the peoples of the earth so that you are to fulfill a special function to be a light to the rest of the world. But that was not readily accepted by a lot of them. In fact, it was opposed by a majority of them. Even though the most famous scripture in all of the Bible should change that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The world? God loves the world? And whosoever believes can have everlasting life. Now, wait a minute. That huge ship called Judaism that became separatistic, legalistic, isolationist was starting to turn, but it was very difficult. I shared with you last week that Peter received that vision on the housetop. God said, get up, kill and eat. He went into the house of Cornelius. And he said, you know, um, Cornelius... Uh, It's unlawful for Jews to go into the house of a Gentile and eat with them. But here I am, because God told me not to call anything that he has cleansed common or unclean. Okay, but then Paul went back to the church in Jerusalem. And when he went back to the church in Jerusalem, these early Christian leaders pointed their fingers at Paul and said, you went into the house of a Gentile and you ate with them. It caused a furor. Then a few chapters later, there was even a council in Jerusalem. You probably remember the story, Acts chapter 15, where these Jewish Christian leaders made a mandate. They finally said, you know, we got to determine who can get to heaven. Even though God said, whoever believes, God loved the world, we got to determine who can get to heaven. And so they said, you got to tell people, Paul and Barnabas, unless you are circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you can't be saved. In other words, you want to be a Christian, you first have to be a Jew. Once you're a Jew, you keep the law, you go through the ritual of circumcision, then you can get to heaven. So often, the progress of the gospel comes from well-meaning, narrow-minded, religious people. Ask any missionary who goes over to places like Russia, and they will tell you it's not the atheistic government that is against them, it's the Orthodox Church that is against them. Go to places like India, or Indonesia, or Thailand. It's the established Christian churches that are often, so often, threatened by any new movement, and they're the ones that persecute. Back in the 1700s, William Carey approached a group of ministers in Northampton, England, and shared his tremendous burden for the lost people groups of the world. He wanted to see Asia one to Christ. He wanted to see specifically the heathen in India one to Christ. The very eminent Reverend Dr. Ryland stood up and spoke for the ministers, and he said to young William Carey, Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Spoken like a true hyper-Calvinist. When God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help or mine. Now, look in verse 1, and let's take it down to verse 7 in our translation. Unity costs something. And first of all, we'll notice unity cost Paul his freedom. Unity costs Paul his freedom. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given me for you, how that by revelation he may know to, to me the mystery, as I've briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ— which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister or a slave, a servant, according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Now, notice it begins with, For this reason. For what reason? For the reason spoken of in the previous chapter. And if you go back to chapter 2, around verse 13 and 14, you get the reason that he is building his premise on. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and broken down the middle wall of separation. The cross is level playing field. It levels the playing field. It makes us all on one level, as Holland was saying in worship, at the foot of the cross, we're all one level. The cross levels the playing field. So he begins, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. Now, I just want to give you a note so you can understand why sometimes it's hard To figure out Paul's writings. Have you ever read a paragraph of Paul's writings? um, And afterwards step back and go. Huh? What, What is that? It's because. Paul was a complex writer. And what he will do is he'll begin a thought. And then he'll string an entire set of thoughts off that. And then several verses later, like in this case, 13 verses later, he'll pick up with the original thought. If you were to diagram his sentences in Greek, it would look like a weird like protein molecule that went bad or something. It's just strung out into space and then it gets back to the original thought. So uh, notice, for example, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, then my Bible has a dash and the thought continues and is not completed to the end of verse 13, where he picks up again. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's picking up the thought, and all of those verses are sort of parenthetical or expounding on the reason before in chapter 2. So that's just a little insight into how Paul writes. Okay, when Paul wrote this, where was he? In jail. He was doing time. He was in a Roman prison under house arrest. Remember we described that? He was there for a couple of years. People could come and go. He could write letters, send them. He had visitors. He had a captive audience. Literally, they were chained to him. The guards were. So he was in a Roman prison. He was doing time. He had been in Jerusalem where a riot broke out. I'll tell you why in a moment. He was then taken from Jerusalem to Caesarea, spent two years there. And then finally, after... Going to court several times, he finally stood up and he said, I've had enough of this. I appeal to Caesar. That was his right as a Roman citizen. They put him aboard a grain ship and they shipped him across the waters to Rome. And he is now waiting in prison as a prisoner of the Roman government, awaiting his trial before Caesar Nero. But, he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul never saw himself as a prisoner of the Roman government but under the sovereign care and protection of God who sovereignly allowed him to have a prison ministry. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. He wanted me here. I can write letters. I can encourage churches. I can win Roman guards to Christ. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. What a great outlook. Look how he puts it in verse 2. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given me for you. Dispensation, I think, is an important word. Oikonomia is the Greek word. We would translate that in English, economy. Oikonomia, economy. It means stewardship. Or to rule over a household. To be a steward over or manage a household. This is what it means. Paul knew he was in a new era under new management. Not the era of the law, not the management of Moses, a new era of grace, a new dispensation of grace, the age of grace. That's what John said. For the law came by Moses, John chapter 1, verse 17, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In verse 5, he writes, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Before Jesus Christ came and the church was unveiled, no one in the Old Testament, not even the greatest prophets, not Isaiah, not Jeremiah, not Malachi, none of them had any idea that God's plan would include taking away all social barriers, all people group barriers, and bring people into one united family called the church. That wasn't in their purview. That wasn't in their thinking. But it was in Paul's thinking it was revealed to him. And here's the point I want to make. Paul knew this. Paul preached it, and it cost him. It cost him. He was hassled by Jews, and he was hassled by Gentiles when all the while he was trying to embrace both and bring them into the church. He was a prisoner because of his unique message of unity. Paul was raised Jewish. Paul became a Pharisee, one of the strictest group of separatists among the Jews he was the kind of guy that was so strict he he was the guy who said God created Gentiles to kindle the fires of hell he believed that tenaciously until God got a hold of him you know the story he's on the road to Damascus gets knocked off who are you I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting he goes into the city of Damascus Ananias comes to him and gives him a message from God. You're a special messenger to me, Paul, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Then Paul went away for three years, Galatians chapter 1 and 2 tells us. He goes to Arabia, out into the desert. He comes back into Jerusalem with a new revelation, a new realization. Here it is. Jesus Christ died for everyone. God loves everyone and he will save anyone. Anyone. And that is the message he starts proclaiming. But it got him into trouble. He leaves Ephesus. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. He makes it to Jerusalem. He's in the temple one day. The Jews who hated him saw him in the temple... And said, the guy who tells people everywhere not to follow the law of Moses, he brought a Gentile into the Jewish court of men in the temple. Well, it wasn't true. They lied, but it managed to get him arrested. Well, Paul saw this as a great opportunity. I'm arrested. I've got all these people who hate me. They get to listen to me now. So he stands on, on the stairs of the temple, and he starts proclaiming a message to him. Gives his testimony. You know who I am. You know how I was raised. You know who taught me. You know I was of the strictest sect of the Jews, a Pharisee. But let me tell you what happened to me. Tells him the Damascus Road story. And then he says, God told me to leave Jerusalem and go and speak to the Gentiles. Now, the Bible says they listened unto him until this word and then as soon as they heard the word Gentiles, God sent you to the Gentiles, they tore their clothes, threw dust in the air, and said, this fella is unfit for life. And they wanted to kill him. A riot broke out, and the Roman guards had to now protect Paul from being torn to pieces. Why? Because he dared tell the Jews that God loves Gentiles. And that he would go preach to them. So Paul was in prison. And on record, he was in prison seven times, seven different occasions. We see Paul ending up in jail. You know, if that's your track record from city to city, I imagine that Paul probably just would go into a town and the first question he'd ask is, hey, uh, where's the jail? (laughs) Why would you ask? I I just want to see where I'm going to be spending the night. That's all (laughs) because that's where he would usually end up. But he sees himself, though it cost him freedom, he saw himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8, because it not only cost Paul his freedom, it cost the angels their attention. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. From the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Principalities and powers are designations for angelic beings. The unity of bringing Jew and Gentile together, the unity of this mystery cost Paul his freedom, cost the angels their attention. Now listen carefully. You may be wondering, if this secret was so cool that Paul says we got to tell everyone, why did God keep it a secret for so long? Why did he wait so long before revealing it? Two reasons. Number one, to give Israel an opportunity to be the light to the Gentiles that they never became. To give them a long period of opportunity to be the light to the Gentiles. And number two, to educate the angels. To educate the angels. Go back to verse 10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities, that is, angelic beings and powers in the heavenly places. The church... The Church of Jesus Christ, you might say, is a graduate course for angels on the wisdom of God in salvation. Keep something in mind. Angels are not omniscient. They don't know everything all the time. Only God is. So angels are learning as time goes on. Angels were there when a third of their ranks fell with Satan. Uh, Angels were there when God created Adam and Eve. They saw it. They witnessed it, the Bible says, and they sang. They were there when Adam and Eve sinned and the human race was plunged into death. They were there when Jesus died on the cross. They were there when he rose from the dead and they saw him ascend into heaven. And ever since then, they've been watching. And listen to what the Bible says. You don't have to turn there. You may want to write it down in the margin of your Bible. 1 Peter 1, verses 10-12. through Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who is in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering. Things which now have been reported to you, through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Listen to it in another translation. This is all so wonderful that even angels are eagerly watching the things that happen. Here's what Peter is saying. When Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these prophets wrote down what they wrote, when they wrote it, they didn't always understand what they were writing. They knew that they were speaking of the Messiah. They understood it was the future, but they thought maybe it's going to happen to us. They didn't quite get what it all meant. So they were prophesying of the salvation which we now see and feel and experience. And even the angels, this is so amazing that they're watching the things that happen. We are a wonder to these creatures in heaven, the angels, as they study us. As they study us, They're learning about God's wisdom, verse 10, to the intent now that the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church to these principalities. Angels have watched in amazement how that God would give heaven's best, Jesus, for earth's worst, us. Why would you do that? And they look, they have studied What seems to the world like foolishness shows the manifold wisdom of God to these angels. By the way, the word manifold means many-colored or variegated. Many-colored, many-faceted. Think of all of the different people groups that have come to know Jesus throughout the centuries. Rich, poor, in every conceivable continent, and the angels have watched it. And no doubt, this is one of the reasons every time a person gets saved, Luke chapter 15 tells us all the angels in heaven rejoice. Look, another one is going to go to heaven forever. Wow, God, you're so wise in making the message so simple. So in the universe, which is the classroom for the angels, God is the teacher. The students are the angels. The lesson plan is the manifold wisdom of god and the illustration is us the church one of the reasons the angels are so curious is because listen to this first corinthians chapter six paul writes don't you know that we will judge angels one day you and i are going to be involved in somehow the judgment of the works of the angels i don't think the angels are too crazy about this idea personally I think they're going, come on, these guys? They can't even get along. They're going to judge us. We didn't fall. But they will learn more about the manifold wisdom of God. Look at verse uh, uh, 8 again. And as you do, let's review. Unity costs Paul his freedom. Unity costs the angels their attention. And here's a third. Unity will cost us our pride. Unity... In the body of Christ will cost us our pride. Verse 8 To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. And then verse 11 According to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through Him and faith, or through faith in Him, therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulation for you which is your glory. How does Paul introduce himself to this church? He didn't say, now remember I am Rabbi Saul, one of the most eminent philosophers, student of Gamaliel, revered rabbis of the Pharisees in Jerusalem. He says, let me tell you, I am less than the least of all the saints. This is not false humility. Humidity. Humidity. No, humility. It is humid, but it's humility. Now, this is true humility in that I believe because Paul made reference to it. I've counted four or five times his utter amazement. His utter amazement, this overwhelming feeling that God forgave him for persecuting the church the way he did. And now has desired to use him in such an incredible capacity. And I think one of the keys to being used by God. Is to be absolutely amazed that he would use you for any reason at all. The moment you say, why didn't God use me? Doesn't he know I'm so gifted and talented? He's really passing up a good one. (laughs) You're toast. Forget it. You're unusable. It's when you're amazed. Wow. God saved a wretch like me. And God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That was Paul's attitude. Now he says in verse uh, 12 and 13, not to lose heart. You guys, you Ephesians, I know that I'm in tribulation. Don't lose heart over it. it. It would seem that the idea of Paul, their leader, this church leader, being in prison and suffering, it was sort of an embarrassment to them. They were losing heart. Hey, we need him. And he's always in jail. (laughs) Always gets picked up by the authorities. We need him, but, well, he's predisposed. And it seems that they were losing heart. They were becoming discouraged. It was an embarrassment to have him suffer so much. Now, you know that um, Paul was in usually secular prisons, Roman jails, But he was often in Roman jails because the Jews in that community made stories up about him, got him in trouble with the Gentiles. Now, here's Paul trying to take Jewish believers and Gentile believers and bring them together. And yet the Jews by nature don't want to hang out with the Gentiles. The Gentiles really don't care much for the Jews. And here's a man who's trying to embrace both and bring them in unity with each other. Unless we're willing to embrace each other, we are going to drive people away. One of the things that the world sees in the church as they look inside churches around America is dysfunction, disunity. Like, oh, we love to sing about love, but we don't do it. And they think, now why on earth would I join a church? I can watch a soap opera and get that. We drive people away unless we see, wait a minute, Paul went to prison for unity. What am I doing for it? How important is it to me? You see, people who don't understand God's mystery, as described here, will overlook their destiny, which is unity for all eternity. Once again, people who don't understand Unity, as Paul described it here, Jew and Gentile, all borders, barriers taken away, male, female, slave, free. We will overlook our destiny, which is unity for all eternity. You see, Jesus died, as we'll close and find out, so that we could be one. Paul went to prison so that we could all be one. If you were to look into a church in the first century, you would see something astonishing to any Gentile or Jewish person at that time. They're together. There's men and women, and they're sitting next to each other. There's Jew and Gentile. There's slave and owner. And they're fellowshipping together. They're all in this common community. What a mystery. And that's the mystery that Paul writes about. You and I are part of a community of redeemed individuals. Some of the people in the family of God, in this family, and this is a growing family, part of a larger family called the church around the world. Some of the people in God's family are like you. Some of the people in God's family aren't like you. The ones that are like you, you'll find, you'll hang out with, you'll love them. But there will be some other people, Christians, and they're not like you, and you don't like them. You'll find them obnoxious, irregular, you might say. What do you do with them? Well, we segregate. They're different. John White writes these words in one of my favorite books called The Fight. He says, you will also discover that some Christians are stupid, (laughs) ornery tactless, stuffed shirts, prudes, hypocrites, and so on. Some will be bigoted, advocates of totally unacceptable political positions. Others will slurp their soup or have bad breath. We shall come to the complex question of how you relate to them later on, but for the present, it's enough that you remember that God loves them even though you find it hard to. You must also be charitable enough to admit that there may be unattractive features in your own personality. You don't wear robes and sandals yourself. (laughs) So we are called in unity together as a body, even though we are different from one another. Unity costs Paul his freedom. Unity costs the angels their attention. As we've seen here, too, unity will cost us our pride. And finally, unity cost Jesus his life. Go back to verse 11. According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Whatever unity may have cost Paul the Apostle in terms of a prison sentence... Whatever unity may have cost the angels in terms of looking down from heaven going, wow, that's amazing. It all pales in comparison to what it cost Jesus. It cost him his blood to bring us together. I mentioned that Paul was in Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem when he met at that final trip on the shores of Miletus and the Ephesian elders were gathered together. These were his final words to him. Therefore, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus died on the cross to get people to heaven and to get people together. To get people together. See, it's not that God's purpose is just to save you, raise your hand, hallelujah, we clap for you because you're going to heaven. Now comes the hard part. Get along, get together, lay down the barriers, the walls of separation that we build and look each other in the eyes and say, we're brothers, we're sisters. And love each other. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. Lord, I pray that they may be one even as we are one. And you know why? He said that the world may believe that you sent me. The world will start taking Christians seriously when we start doing what they think and know we ought to be doing. Love each other. Build bridges instead of walls that the world may believe that you sent me. Think of what the world imagines in their mind when they see church members arguing over which color of choir robes they should have and the church splits because of it. What color the chairs or the pews ought to be? What style of music should be entertained or not? Which style of hair is good? Which mode of baptism is acceptable? Sprinkling or dunking? Who cares? That's so secondary. And they look at that and they go, hmm. And they are trying to get me to come and be a part of them? Unity. So, here's the conclusion. The church is important enough to God that it was his plan from the beginning. It was the secret, this musterion, this mystery that now Paul says, I'm telling everybody about because it's no longer a secret. It's important enough to God that he would send his son to die for it and Paul to suffer for it. Big question is, how important and vital is it to you and I? How important and vital is it to you and I? We American Christians have an overblown notion of an idea that we call a personal relationship with Christ. And we take that to the extreme to mean it's personal and private. Uh, No. Jesus said, when you pray, say our father. Forgive us our trespasses. Jesus came to take the me and my out of our lives and replace it with us and we. It's called the body of Christ. And I just say that we have that overblown notion of a personal relationship. And, and what happens is we become disconnected and independent spiritual drifters. It's all about me and my own personal relationship. Don't bother me. It's my relationship. This is how I do it. It may not be how you do it. No, Jesus gave us the template of how it's to be done. I once read a description of the church. Somebody said the church is like a pack of porcupines on a cold wintry night. You know, we we have many fine points, but to get together is very difficult. And so the cold drives us together. And as we get together, we get closer. We get too close and we poke each other and we get driven away from each other. And so we're doing this dance of adjustment. We need each other, he said, but we needle each other at the same time. And yet we're called to do that as we will say or see later on, endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There was a story I think I may have told you about. He was an Indian emperor named Shah Jahan, and he built a very fancy tomb. I've been in this tomb. It's called the Taj Mahal. One of the seven wonders of the world, this magnificent, bright, white building. And he built it because he married this gal, his wife whom he loved. She died at a young age, and he wanted to give her a fitting memorial. So he built the Taj Mahal. As he was building it, he got so consumed with the building project, he forgot about her. And here's the story. He put the coffin in the middle of the field. He started building around it. He was very careful not to uh, 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 upset it. And eventually he was so consumed in the project that the story has it. One day he brushed up against this wooden box covered with sawdust and junk. And he said, get this box out of here. It was her. He became so consumed with the project he forgot about for whom the project was for. We can sometimes get so busy about the king's business, we forget about the king. We can get so busy about church stuff and consumed about church stuff that we forget about who owns the church. And uh, and could it be that you've lost interest in the church because you've lost interest in the owner who died for it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Paul says it's a mystery. And it is a mystery that you love us. It is a mystery that you're able to get us all together. But we are together. Because of a common blood that was shed. A common denominator that we all believe in. And that is the blood of your son that was shed. And we have that in common. Lord, forgive us for the times that we have made our fellowship about the hour, about the us, about my, about my needs, my views, instead of yours or ours. And Lord, we just want to up front say thank you for all of the Different expressions that are in our community, in our state, in our county, the many churches that are around. Thank you for them, Lord. Lord, help us to see that though there are people that we may not like because they're not like us, they're people you love. And we're going to be together forever. because you sent Jesus to die for that unity and because Paul, your servant, suffered for that unity and because the angels are mystified that you chose us and manifest your wisdom in that and no doubt are mystified when we don't love each other even though you've forgiven us great debt. I pray, Lord, that it would mean a lot to us after tonight. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so, Lord, here we are, your flawed, imperfect church.